And hello and welcome to this week's edition of Novak Now. I'm Jake Novak here on the Nachum Siegel Network. And again, please follow my Twitter feed for longer references and a chance to read more about some of the topics and issues I'm talking about on this edition of Novak Now and all the editions of Novak Now. Um, I do sometimes jump into topics and go into them pretty deeply without uh, realizing whether or not uh, all the listeners are even aware of some of the basic facts. So, of course, we don't have hours and hours to work with on this program, so I like to use the Twitter feed to post the links to longer articles or maybe even a link to buy a book about a topic that I'm talking about. You can find that all on my Twitter feed, at JakeJakeNY. And I often put it on my Facebook uh, page as well. It's just Jake Novak, N-O-V-A-K. And I'm on LinkedIn, too, although I don't usually post too many Novak Now-related stuff on LinkedIn. I do preview the program every week, but that's about it. But of course, you can find very interesting things on that feed as well, the Jake Novak LinkedIn feed. Uh, It's been a long time since I've done multiple topics on any edition of Novak Now, but I want to do that today because I feel like there's so many interesting points to make about things that have gone on just in the last several days. And um, maybe they're not the biggest stories going on in the world, but they're stories that really deserve a little bit more discussion. So the first thing I want to talk about is the passing of former Secretary of State George Shultz. And I want to talk about something very serious and sort of above board about, about him, and then a little something that I always found funny but, but useful about him. Um, so one thing you should know about George Shultz, if you don't already know now, most of you listening probably only think of the city of San Francisco and that part of California as being this big liberal Democratic Party, even further to the left of the Democratic Party bastion. You know, this place that's, and you probably think of it as always having been that way. And of course, it's not true. Uh, The city of San Francisco, uh, especially during the years when it became uh, its own sort of city in its own right, you know, San Francisco was this, of course, really was probably was the first real metropolis of California. It was the first real major city of California. Of course, it grew out of the California gold rush. And it became a major important city in that state well before Los Angeles did, for example, of course, or San Diego or something like that. Uh, And then it had a tremendous calamity in 1906, that massive earthquake, which really leveled the city. And from that point on, it started to sort of dwindle in importance in California compared to some other cities that were coming, uh, that were up and coming. And of course, Los Angeles uh, became the most important city in in California, starting in the 1920s, I would say, and then ever since. But in the 1940s, 50s, and into the 60s, San Francisco started to get a new, basically, identity for itself as still a very important port city. And it really, it stabilized from that precipitous decline and and the, the problems that it had been facing as a city since that great earthquake. And many of you may not know that it was the California Democratic Party really based in San... uh, Sorry, not Democratic Party. It was the California Republican Party. You see, now I've got it on my mind too. But it was the California Republican Party that really, really um, was based in San Francisco for those years and was really, really strong in San Francisco during that time. And George Schultz, Schultz was part of that establishment. You know, he had been a football player at Princeton, by the way. A lot of people don't know that about him. And 
really came up from an established family in that area, and he helped create um, a real factory of outstanding thinkers and Republican Party um, operatives and operatives isn't the best word, but just op- elected officials and and sometimes just bureau- you know people who were working with those elected officials for many many years. And it wasn't really until the seventies that San Francisco's Republican Party really really weakened and started to go into the wane. But it wasn't it wasn't erased really. I mean, it remained a factor in the city until the nineteen eighties, I would say. And George Schultz was a part of that. And when that power base of the Republican Party in the state of California that was based in San Francisco, pretty much led by people like George Schultz, took a good look at a potential candidate named Ronald Reagan in 1966, they played a huge role in getting him elected by a landslide in 66 and another landslide in 1970. Um, So, you know, when people talk about California and what it's like and, and, and where it is politically and where it is culturally... Uh, It wasn't always that way. (laughs) And Ronald Reagan's two landslide victories as governor in 66 and 1970. And of course, there were big election victories for Republicans in California in 1982 and 1986 and 19... They've had Republican governors, folks. And and I'm not just talking about the Arnold Schwarzenegger kind of celebrity governor or Ronald Reagan, even celebrity type governor, although Reagan was a much different type of governor than Arnold Schwarzenegger was. But George Schultz was, was a part of that, and I think that there's a real need for that kind of leadership in a city. It's got nothing to do with Republican or Democrat. If you think I'm going to say, oh, we want more moderate-type Republicans or moderate-type Dem- Democrats, that's always true. You always want a mix of moderate and more hardcore folks in either party. That's fine. But that's not what I'm saying. Understand that that San Francisco-based Republican Party that George Schultz was such a part of such a big part of, was so much based on improving a city. They, they had seen that the city had fallen you know, off of its high perch in California over the decades, and yet they realized that from a geographical point of view and for a lot of other reasons, the city could do much better. I mean, does this sound familiar to you? Don't we want people like that in New York City to come around now and create political leadership that is responsive to this city? And it's not looking for, I don't know, some kind of uh, approval from a national party or to fight a national battle. I mean, what we've seen in New York City and in New York State in the feuding that the governor and the mayor had with the pre- with president, you know, now former President Trump was really, really disturbing and I think really hurt the city. And it certainly put us behind the eight ball when it came to COVID-19 vaccinations. So wouldn't we like to see either party in America, first of all, really, really bubbling up from local level, that's very important, and really coming up with an idea of just improving life in the, at whatever city, improving the economies in whatever city that they come from. You know, we do have political celebrities, for lack of a better word, who obviously come from in local areas, but they have either, they have national ambitions they want to create they want, they either want to adopt an agenda to push and push that on the rest of the country or take an agenda that has been already raised nationally and bring it to their locality but not for any economic improvement or life improvement just for ideological to spread an ideology i mean that's what i think congresswoman alexandria ocasio or, or, or you know, is doing i mean i think that 
you know, AOC, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, I think that that's what she's doing. I think that she is taking, you know, she, she is adopting certain national philosophies, many of which I don't think she even had in, in her mind or was thinking about when she first decided to run. But she's trying to bring ideology to New York City, as a, and that's why she stood against Amazon, as opposed to bringing economic improvement, as opposed to just bringing up, you know, improvement to her own district. And the kind of people, the kind of organizations that George Schultz and the Republican Party of California in the 40s, 50s, and 60s out of San Francisco was looking to do was the exact opposite. They were looking to build that city better and to do good things just locally first. And then, of course, they spread it to the rest of the state. And then because Ronald Reagan was so personally popular among the conservative movement, it, some of those things did go national. But that's the, that's the order that you want it to go. Start locally. Start with your own neighborhood. Start with your own uh, town. Start with your own large, you know, city area. And in the case of New York City, you know, or San Francisco, a metropolitan area. And then, if it's popular enough and it seems to work, sure, then spread it to your state. That's great. But whether you're going to, but when you take on an ideology for an entire national movement or something like that, and you think that let's just bring this ideology here and it's not about building things and it's not about creating new jobs. It's about let's get people thinking in a certain way and let's make sure that we identify certain enemies. That's not the, that's not the <clears throat> vigorous optimism that I've been pushing on Novak now the last several weeks. It's not part of that. If you feel that there's a chance for your city to do better, and to economically rise up and, and, and to really improve itself. The way to do it, the way most people, I think, who are successful, who will think about it, will be not, not to look at some kind of national idea or national ideology. It will be to say, here's what we need to do in this city. Here's what we need to do in our town. And if it turns out to have larger ramifications for other towns and other states and the whole country, fine. But that's, not, that's the order that is the order you want to follow. Local first, then national. And I think that that's very important. Uh, another thing about George Schultz, and this is, the, again, on the, on the more serious side, I do believe he was a pretty good friend of Israel. You know, the Reagan administration generally was friendly to Israel, certainly more than had for, you know, if Jimmy Carter had been reelected. I think that Israel would have had real issues if he had had a second term. But there were people in the, in the Reagan administration who were not friendly to Israel, most notably the defense secretary, Caspar Weinberger, and there were people in the Reagan administration who were very standoffish about supporting Israel in a stronger way. Certainly, the Trump administration was much more pro-Israel, even though they're both Republican administrations. <clears throat> in some ways, the George W. Bush administration was more pro-Israel as well. But I think there were, there were aspects of the Reagan administration that were a little bit more standoffish. They certainly did not take an anti-Israel approach. George Schultz was one of the people, I think, in that administration who was more pro-Israel than other people in that administration. And most importantly, and this is a personal memory I have of him, George Schultz had a tremendously strong outlook and, and position on Soviet Jewry. He was very outspoken on getting Soviet Jew, Jews to Israel if they wanted to, you know, to go to Israel. He was very outspoken on getting human rights for Jews in the Soviet Union. And there was one year, my senior year of high school, where uh, I was invited to spend a day in Washington and go to the State Department and go talk to certain representatives on Capitol Hill about Soviet Jewry. And when we got to the State Department, 
George Schultz uh, gave us a, a speech. It was a small group of people, and he and he came and talked with us, and it was really quite impressive. Um, and that's where I want to finish up talking about George Schultz just for a second, about something that might bring a smile to your face, especially if you're a parent of a child who is either now learning for his bar bat mitzvah or is you know older than bar bat mitzvah age. You know, it comes to that point in time in a bar, bar bat mitzvah's uh, preparation time. And I think this is something that's true of all the denominations of, of Judaism. I mean, whether you're very orthodox or you're very reform, I think most bar and bat mitzvah, certainly bar mitzvah, if you're talking about the more orthodox, but I think most of them have to at some point give that speech, to give the thank you speech, or in the case of, you know, you might want to even call it a vartar. At some point, they're going to have to do some public speaking for their bar and bat mitzvah. And over the years, both in my young years and now when I was training my own daughters for their bat mitzvahs, and, and sometimes I've, I've offered advice to other families and done some other kinds of tutoring. When I do my little spiel on how they should give their speech or, work, or sometimes really work with them for a long time about how they should do their speech, I always remind them that because I don't care how articulate or really well-educated a kid is, most likely when they do their first public speaking thing for, you know, as they start to practice for it, they're likely going to speak too fast. They're likely not going to speak loud enough and they're not going to be clear enough. And I have to say something. And I learned, I, I, I always sort of knew this because I would see George Schultz speaking on TV. But when I finally saw him live and in person that, that year in high school, when he came to speak to us at the State Department, it occurred to me that George Schultz was the slowest clearest speaker I had ever heard. And that was, geez, that was like about 30, 33 years ago that I, that I had that, that, that experience. And in those 33 years, no one has come close. So if you are teaching your child to give his or her, you know, bar bat mitzvah speech, find a YouTube video of George Schultz giving a public speech, not, not an interview, because I think that, you know, they cut those interviews and they, and they speed them up. See if you can get a real-time recording video of George Schultz giving a speech while he was Secretary of State, and you'll see what I'm talking about. And I don't care how elderly and hard of hearing um, your relatives at a bar about mitzvah may be, or how far away they're sitting from the pulpit of the Bima, <laughs> they're going to be able to really enjoy and understand what your child is saying if they follow the George Schultz method. Now, I will say this one thing. There's no way they're ever going to speak as slowly and as clearly as he did. But if they try to imitate him, and if they try to emulate him, they'll do a great job. So that's one of the things I'll never forget about George Schultz. Just a couple, just, you know, interesting things. You know, the fact that he was part of this Republican um, group that, that started in San Francisco, most people just don't know anything about that unless they're like old time California historians and, some, and stuff like that. The fact that he was just such a great defender and advocate for Soviet Jewry. And, and I just can't forget the way he, he, he delivered speeches and spoke publicly. Um, so those are, that's that. Uh, speaking of the State Department and speaking of American foreign policy, the, uh, the new Biden administration, I think, has made a mistake in removing the terrorist designation for the Houthi rebels in Yemen. And I think the mainstream media has made a mistake in suddenly starting to portray the civil war in Yemen as something other than it is. Um, the Houthi rebels were rightfully designated as terrorists by the Trump administration because they are backed by Iran. And Iran doesn't back anybody or anything 
unless, especially if they're military, for anything other than terrorist purposes. The Houthis are no different than Hezbollah or some of these other terrorist groups that Iran supports. And the Houthis started the civil war. Now, I saw in a number of publications in the last several days reporting on this decision by the Biden administration, I was shocked to see that in their headlines and sometimes even in the body of the articles, they referred to the civil war in Yemen as a Saudi-backed or Saudi-instigated civil war. I mean, that is 100% opposite of the truth. This is an Iranian-backed and an Iranian-instigated civil war. The Houthis are fighting a civil war and trying to overthrow the existing Yemeni government. Now, let me get to something very, very clear. I'm not saying that the existing Yemeni government was any kind of group of saints. This is just a, this is a, this is a, a designation of truth, of demonstrable truth here. I don't know how any news organization can portray the civil war in Yemen as something that the Saudis started. Are the Saudis backing the existing government? Are the Saudis helping that war, you know, that war be fought from the side against the Houthis? Yes. But this was an instigation by Iran to not just, you know, the, the immediate goal is obviously that, that whatever ruling government in Yemen is, but, the, but the, the overall goal is to attack Saudi Arabia. The Houthi rebels have used, that want to use their perch in Yemen, which is just south of Saudi Arabia, to attack Saudi Arabia. That's why the Iranians are interested in the Houthis. The Iranians have no interest in Yemen as a country. But the Iranians like the idea that it is bordering Saudi Arabia and if the Houthi rebels get more and more power there, even if they don't eventually take over the whole government, they will have a, a beachhead, so to speak. Or, you know, they'll, they'll have a menacing power at the southern border of their greatest enemy, Saudi Arabia. And Saudi Arabia is their greatest enemy. You should, we should all be clear about that. But another thing that <clears throat> that story really makes me think about is it's just, it's again part of that playbook that very, very, I'm very, very happy to say we're starting to drift away from in the Middle East generally when we see these peace agreements between Israel and Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates and some of these other Arab countries. We are moving away from 90 plus years of non-Arab countries, and Iran is not an Arab country. It's a Muslim country, but it's not an Arab country, just so you know a little bit about the anthropological designations of these countries. But we have had 90 plus years now in the Middle East of non-Arab countries using outside money and outside influences to fund genocidal groups that ruin a more peaceful, I'm not saying a perfect, but a more peaceful state, a usual state of affairs in the Middle East between different groups. I know know we all think, oh, well, it's been thousands of years of war between... Different you know, Muslims, Jews, and Christians. I mean, listen, there's a lot of wars. I understand that. And certainly the Sunni-Shia civil war, which has been going on for 1,400 years, has had its, <laughs> obviously, its, its low and high points during that period. But it was the Nazi influence and the Nazi funding for what was a marginal group known as the Muslim Brotherhood that really gave them their turbocharged power starting in the ni- late 1920s and going into the 30s. And of course, the Muslim Brotherhood is really the father organization to so many of the terrorist groups that we see today, whether it's Al-Qaeda, uh, whether it's ISIS. The Muslim Brotherhood especially was really that, the, the, the parent group for that kind of, for those terrorist groups and also for that ideology. Now, there was plenty of Muslim thought and Muslim teaching 
that was not favorable to Jews over the centuries. But it was never to the point of genocide. It was never to the point of all evil comes from the Jews or that kind of nonsense until you had the Muslim Brotherhood come along. And that disrupted what it had been, with obviously some exceptions along the way, what had been a cold and sometimes even warm peace, peaceful relationship between, between Muslims and, you know, and Arabs in general and Jews in the Middle East over a long period of time. Now, I'm not saying that Jews had equality in Muslim countries. They did not. But the kind of level of, of it did not deteriorate to the consistent level bad level that it did later on in this century until the Muslim Brotherhood really got that foothold from an outside foreign funding power. And that's exactly what's happening with the Houthi rebels. A foreign funding power, power in the case of Iran, is funding them in the, for the, in the purpose of mayhem. Just like the Germans. You think the German, you know, the Nazis were interested in, in, in Islam and Islamic ideology and a non, you know, non-Aryan, non-white peoples of the Middle East, they couldn't care less. But they loved the idea that they that the Muslim Brotherhood was a group that was looking to kill Jews, and they and and also to attack the British and the French. So they gave them money and they gave them encouragement. I don't think Iran cares one bit about the people of Yemen, and I don't think that's even a stretch for anyone to believe. I think we know that kind of to be true. But they love the fact that the Houthi rebels are willing to create more mayhem in the Middle East to threaten Sunni powers and specifically to be a, a threat on the southern border for rocket attacks, which, which they've already launched. They're not waiting for a civil war to be end, to end. The Houthi rebels have attacked Saudi Arabia many times. And this is an Iranian-funded operation from top to bottom. It's important for us to remember that. And it's also important to remember that it stands in contrast to the very positive and optimistic developments in the Middle East that have been going on for the last year. The Muslim Brotherhood and and the founders of the Muslim Brotherhood would be aghast at the peace deals that Israel has been making with UAE and Bahrain and some of these other countries. The best way to defeat this kind of genocidal outlook on anyone who isn't a Muslim Arab is to pursue these kinds of peaceful these kinds of peaceful agreements, which is why they are a big deal for the people who say it's not a big deal. They were, you know, Israel and Bahrain were never in a war with each other. They don't understand the Middle East. I mean, they are. It, it's amazing how certain people who have an ignorance about a topic are so willing to show you that ignorance. People who pour cold water on these peace agreements don't understand the Middle East. Now, I will admit there are there's a lot of people like that, and there are people like that in very, very high-level positions who are supposedly well-educated. But I don't care how many degrees or letters you have after your name. If you're someone who's pouring cold water on these peace agreements, you don't know anything about what's real in the Middle East and what's really important from an ideological and a cultural standpoint. You know nothing. And you probably don't know a lot of the trivial type history, bullet point, jeopardy type question stuff either, by the way. I think that we spend too much time in America trying to judge the good or bad of a person and not enough time telling ourselves or asking someone, you need to show me that you really are such a knowledgeable person. I need to know that you really know what you're talking about. Obviously, I want to know if you're a good person or not, but that's not as easy as figuring out whether you know, for example, who, who really funded the Muslim Brotherhood starting in the late 20s and going through the 1930s. If you don't know that and you don't know the significance of that, then it's a real, real problem when it comes to your ability to analyze what's going on 
in the Middle East. And to say one more thing, I'm going to go into one more topic. I know I'm going into three topics uh, in this edition of Novak now, but this is a, a brief one, but it's something obviously a little bit more close to home. I know a lot of us watched the Super Bowl uh, yesterday, if you're, if you're listening to this on Monday, and you watched all the programming there and all the commercials and things like that. And there was certainly a very, very strong push to discuss uh, African-American struggles in America and racism and all that kind of stuff. And I know we've been hearing it all year, but they really pulled out all the stops at the Super Bowl. And I know that there's some people who feel upset that that was brought into the game in such a, pre- you know, such a prominent way. And I think that it's, before we talk about whether it's a thumbs up or thumbs down for that kind of stuff, we have to understand the playing field here, no pun intended, when we talk about the NFL. Folks, the NFL is in an interesting situation in something that I, I know can be looked at in a, in a way that might make someone very uncomfortable. Most of the players now in the NFL are African-Americans. None of the owners are African-Americans. And just from on paper, just from an, you know, looking at from the outside in, that makes people, I think, nervous. And when you have the kind of protests this summer that we had and, and all the other issues that were going on, I think the owners really felt like if they didn't make it sound like they were as, on the same exact page as the players when it came to discussing racism in America, that there may be real problems in the league for them. And there's something to be said for that. I don't think that that's necessarily all bad, but it does make me just sad in a way because it feels like so many other supposedly well-meaning policies that we have in our society that it feels to me like they're coming from a place of fear and not from love and not from a real desire to make things better. For example, I think a lot of the welfare policies that we have in this country are meant as some kind of a, I mean, I'm not saying they work, but they, for some people, I think that they are meant as some kind of a way to pay, pay a group of people off in the hopes that they won't rob them or hurt them which is really, really insulting for everyone all around. It kind of makes the people who are giving that, that kind of aid out look like cowards, and it certainly makes like the people who are recipients of that aid as, a, as if they're some kind of violent barbarians that if they're not placated with money or, or some kind of other program, they will attack you. It's really a disgusting situation all the way around. And there's a little bit of that, I feel, in what the NFL has been doing this year. It really feels like an almost like, okay, I'll say this and we'll do this, just don't hurt me. And it's just, it's just so, it's just a kind of a disgusting way to look at things. And it's certainly not going to solve any problems. For those of you who have listened to past editions of Novak Now or read my articles about my ideas about fixing this issue, you know that I really feel strongly about two things. One, only a fool and someone really, really not paying attention would say there isn't a form of opportunity inequality, and in this case, in the most important example of that, education inequality in America. Depending on where you live in America, and to a great deal depending on your income, you don't have, not everyone has the same educational opportunities, period. And only a fool would say otherwise. And I think it's also really, really foolish to believe that any other of the disparities that we talk about in America are anywhere near as important. We must close this educational gap in America. And instead of doing commercials and marches and having slogans and everything else like that, I would like the NFL owners, the big corporate owners, and the major universities with large endowments to stop talking about stuff like this and stop thinking that little little uh, lip service things would fix it. 
I would like them to use their money and their influence to build better schools. And if they're officially private schools without union teachers, so be it. Too bad. We must help these children all over the country close that gap. So that's more important to me than any of the commercials or the pageantry or what I think is kind of a cowardly lip service almost to trying to end racism. That's really not going to work. What I just talked about, I want to hear solutions. I don't want to see pageantry. I'm Jake Novak. This has been Novak Now on the Malcolm Siegel Network. I hope to speak to you again next week.